0: I would want my IT organization to feel in their bones that they are the competitive advantage to the business, right? And when I say feel it, I mean really embrace the fact that they are not just keeping the data centers running. They are the thing that is going to keep the business advancing.
1: Welcome to Don't Break the Bank, Run It and Change It, a podcast for curious minds in the financial services industry. I'm Matthew O'Neill, and together with my co-host Brian Hayes, we both worked for over 30 years in banking and banking IT before joining VMware. In today's episode, we talk with Jennifer Manry, Vice President of the Global Industries Group at VMware. Jennifer's responsible for VMware's financial services strategy, market development, and financial services solutions. She recently joined VMware from one of our biggest customers, so has a great perspective of working for a megabank and now at a tech company. She's also really funny and insightful, and this is a great episode for listeners trying to ride that wave of digital transformation, whether as an executive or someone in the trenches. Welcome, Jennifer. Great to have you with us today. Hey, how are you? Very good, very good. Thank you for coming with us. So um, can you give us a quick intro about you and your role? I just joined VMware
0: about three months ago to lead the Financial Services Global Industry Group. In that role, I'll be really focusing on how VMware shows up in the market, how we shape a financial services strategy that helps us be relevant with business outcomes that all of our financial services customers are focused on and really try to help them solve the business challenges
1: of today. So then from a career perspective, how did you end up here? Uh, That's
0: a pretty windy road for sure. I, I guess I would say since I was about nine, I have always wanted to be an engineer of some sort and the flavor of engineering has sort of changed over time. Initially, I wanted to be electrical, then I studied mechanical in college, and then landed in manufacturing, where robotic automation was doing a lot of car building. I worked in the car industry, and I decided at after being uh, around these robots and the automation for several years that I thought this is kind of cool, you know, working in information technology and seeing the impact they can have on things like manufacturing really led me into making a pretty big career shift away from being a mechanical engineer into information technology. And I will admit that all through college, I actually didn't have any what you would consider classical training for programming or information technology. So I made a pretty big jump into a career in information technology at General Electric and did a two year, every six month rotating job through some of the core disciplines in IT. So I started in networking, I did data warehousing. I did application development and then did ERP implementing. And so that that's sort of how I got a crash course in information technology. I loved it. I loved the instant gratification of being able to tinker with things and seeing seeing kind of you know transformation happen right between, before your eyes. And then I started after really being focused on application development, really loving this idea of human factors. So up to a point, there was a lot of work on like just engineering solutions and then hoping that it would be useful to the people that you were um, creating it for. And I actually really kind of fell in love with this idea of doing usability testing and understanding how humans would use what was built and created. So I kind of followed that track into the last six years of my career where I focused on employee experience and really understanding how employees interact with the technology they have at work. And um, here I am. I've been in banking and insurance for the vast majority of my career. I love technology and seeing how it can solve the issues of the financial services industry. And so this is, this is where I am. It's a long way from where I started but or where I thought I'd be at this time, but it's been a really fun career getting
1: here. So looking back then, what would you say was your career defining moment?
0: I think it was really when I decided to make this shift away from traditional engineering. I mean, for context, I, I got into mechanical engineering as a way to get into biomedical engineering. Um, that was what I had planned for myself. So you can imagine moving to information technology is kind of a big shift. And I think that was sort of a defining moment because it was really uncomfortable you know, to, to say, look, I planned this for my whole life. Um, Now I'm going to move away from it to do something that I've sparked an interest in myself in and taking kind of a leap of faith that I could learn something totally different that I hadn't been trained in while on the job performing it was a pretty career defining moment for me because it sort of set the path for being willing to take bigger and bigger risks and do new and different things over the course of my career and, and being trusting that I could pick it up and, and learn it and hopefully be
1: successful at it. Fabulous. Fabulous. Okay. Let's go into our deep dive. Ben And I did a real deep dive. All right. Uh, let's get into it.
0: We'll find out everything there is to know.
1: So Jennifer, look, you, you recently joined VMware from one of our biggest customers. Um, tell us about your onboarding expectation and actual experience, given that you joined in the middle of the pandemic There's no visiting the office. You know, what what was your expectation versus what was reality?
0: Yeah, I will say joining a brand new company when you can't actually go in and visit anyone and be able to get assimilated to the culture as well as to the your working team is a little, it can be unnerving. I went into it expecting to have to overcome some challenges of that reality, right? And knowing that at some point, hopefully, uh, when things settle down, I could come in and see everyone and travel to, to see my teammates. But I will tell you, the good thing about it is I worked with VMware for the, the better part of six years. So I had a sense for what the culture would feel like from the people that I got to work with. And the good news is it's been very easy for me to pick up on the culture and, and assimilate to it via video collaboration tools, which I thought like would be hard, but it actually has been pretty seamless. And I will tell you from an onboarding perspective, given my um, prior roles, onboarding sort of like the holy grail of experiences that every company wants to nail for new joiners. They want to nail it when the employees are coming into an office to get their equipment, but it's even harder to do well when you're not in an office, right? So everything sort of hinges on how easy it is for you to get up and running. And so you can probably predict that I would be very, very focused on what that felt like as a new joiner to get my equipment and onboard. I was hoping that because of VMware's prowess in this area, it would be really frictionless. And I was right. It was awesome. Clearly uh, put a lot of time and effort into making sure that experience was easy from an onboarding perspective. So I would say, it is a little unnerving to think about joining someplace brand new, but the culture has been great and has come through loud and clear, and the onboarding process from a tech perspective was super easy.
2: So, Jennifer, you said that you had you know, six years of experience with VMware before before joining the company. What surprised you the most now that you're inside the company?
0: Well, in between roles, I sat down and wrote out all the things I thought were relevant, like industry-specific challenges that I or my teammates had been trying to solve in prior roles. And then I joined VMware and I opened up all the product information and I tried to do the mapping of like product to business problem. And I was actually like, I thought I knew VMware really well. I mean, I'd spent so much time working with VMware. um, I was pleasantly surprised to see that there were things that we offer from a product perspective that I didn't even know about, that I was like, wow, we could have done some pretty amazing transformative things if I had just known about this, right? So I think the great news is there was 100% mapping of the things that I think the industry is focused on to things that we offer from a VMware perspective. I think that was the aha for me. It was like, I only knew one portion of it. And there's this whole suite of offerings that I think are super relevant to the industry's biggest challenges right now.
1: 100% with you, 100% with you. And honestly, that was the whole idea of this podcast. Uh, The questions we didn't even know are questions, the things we didn't even know. And then so many of the things that we wish we'd have actually known about before. Um, Snap, so so very much the same. Changing that a little bit then, so you've started meeting with customers and you've been talking with customers about the challenges they've had over this last year and maybe their experiences with VMware. What have you learned from those customer meetings? And how's that reflected in the plans that you've now got for for leading this as a vertical? The theme
0: I hear in, in most of these customer interactions is, Every one of them is grappling now with a transformation journey that they knew they had to make, but now are having to do it on an even more accelerated timeline. And so I think all of them had multifaceted plans, but now are having to really accelerate them. In some cases, they've, they've already had to execute on some of them in days and weeks as opposed to quarters of years. And I also think that the problems that they're trying to tackle are really super interconnected challenges, and they're having to tackle them simultaneously. So what I mean by that is they're all laying out a cloud strategy and executing on it. They also have an app modernization strategy that is dependent on the cloud strategy and their line of business strategies for growth and um, new products and features that will roll out. They've got people and process changes that they have to solve in order to be able to accelerate the movement of app modernization and cloud modernization to keep pace with new product features that are coming out of the market from competitors. And then also trying to balance resiliency, being always on, stepping up their game for information security to tackle what is even more aggressive and sophisticated set of threat actors, and then deal with regulatory compliance in a changing landscape, right? So any one of those pieces of the strategy is complex enough. But they're all looking at them as this holistic set of strategies that are all interconnected and interdependent on each other. And that's really difficult. I think they've all got plans in one way, shape, or form. So that's at least good. But it's just the complexity of the dynamics of that interconnectedness and also the pace at which they've got to execute on it now seems to be pretty consistent. I'd say from my perspective, that's where I think the work that we do from a vertical is really important because we know these things, right, that are happening in the industry. We know that there's this complexity in these competing agendas. It makes it even more important for us to come to the table and say, we know these problems. Here's how we as a company can help you solve them and come with these outcome-driven solutions that will help them streamline a lot of this complexity. And so I knew this was a looming problem. And then I got here and I said, this is why it's really important that we get really crisp on what we do from a vertical perspective with our offerings, because these are really hard problems our customers are trying to solve, and they need us to streamline it and partner with them to help them get to their destination, not only quickly, but successfully.
1: Everybody we are talking with has said that the, and I hate the expression, the new normal, but the expectation upon them now is to continue at the pace they're at. It's not that they've stepped up and now they can ease off, that they've shown the business what can be done things are now in motion to kind of keep the motion going. That's the same, both sides of the pond, right?
0: I definitely agree. I think up to this point, it may have been easy for the technology organizations to explain the complexity of this and and that to be not, I don't want to say an excuse, but a justification for why things had to take longer. I think now over the past 18 months, by forces that were outside of anyone's control, they've had to implement some of these things on a pretty fast turn. I mean, you think about some of the, things like payment protection that had to be implemented in you know a matter of days now it's been demonstrated that under pressure and with really really critical business need these things can happen at a faster pace right so you've proven that you can do it now now it needs to be proven to be a sustainable model to keep that pace
1: so what are your thoughts then in the run the bank versus change the bank we we used to well we haven't talked about that a lot this series But do you think there's new money? Do you think this is reprioritized programs? Do you you think money and project funding is that gating factor now, or or is it something different?
0: Well, this is a non-answer. I think it depends, right? So I would say, at least in my experience, there's a lot of technology investment, especially in these past few years, because companies are realizing that they've got to make a big investment because technology is now a competitive advantage and not a back office function but how much you can continue to grow and grow that investment over time, there will be a limiting function there, right? So I think there's now this real need for, if you're gonna keep investment levels at a certain level and and hold them flat and maybe increase them on the margins a little bit over year over year, now it's forcing this run the bank to find ways to create leverage for a new investment, right? Or to create savings to fund a new investment. And so I do think that there's a big push on, the run the bank work to automate, to eliminate expense, to get rid of manual work that's not value added, so that it frees up investment money for new innovation. Because there's, you can't just continue to radically grow your technology dollars year over year, right? You've got to start to tidy up the house, if you will, in order to make room for new things.
1: Yeah, well, and that monetizing to then be able to save. Uh, yeah, there's Some of the firms we work with have a really good program in place that they share the savings back with the CIO, whereas I think there's others... Others just bank them.
0: (laughs) Well, I always kind of looked for my prior roles. New things happen like every year, right? New things that you need to be able to be positioned to respond to. And so I like to think about my BAU work or my operations work and always invest time and effort in eliminating and calling out um, non-value-added work and automating where I could because I knew there was an expectation that I find ways to self-invest, right? Like, you know, I can't continue to come back and ask for more and more money without demonstrating I'm doing something to save and being responsible with the money and budget I was already given. So I think that's a muscle that will continue to need to be built, that teammates are looking for ways to eliminate cost on one side so that they can free up money for new innovation and, and new investment.
2: So in conversations, we hear a lot of our customers talk around uh, the constraints of regulation and regulatory and compliance, and also the legacy issue of technical debt. Is this a a convenient excuse used by some to say no, or is there a genuine issue that customers need a different kind of support and help to overcome this? And
0: when you say say no, say no to buying new products or say no to things that because they say, hey, look, I can't use this thing because it doesn't meet my compliance requirements or information security requirements? Yes. I do actually think financial services, maybe even healthcare, there are some other industries where there is legitimacy in terms of the requirements for meeting regulatory uh, requirements as well as information security, right? So I do think that there is a reason that companies with high bars for things like regulation and information security push back on products. So I will say, I think that they're real and legitimate concerns. The, The trick is now, there are lots of ways that compliance with the regulation and compliance with information security requirements have happened in the past. And the newer products on the market have different ways of satisfying those requirements. So I think where the rubber meets the road a little bit now is you might have teammates pushing back and saying, no, we can't use that product because it doesn't meet our needs. And the product company is saying, we do meet the me- needs, but we do it in a different way. And so now bridging the gap of, like, what has been the status quo of how those requirements are met versus how the um, new products and offerings on the market meet those requirements requires a lot of conversation between product companies and the actual, like, financial services customers themselves. Because I think, in some ways, they know that this is the way we've always solved this problem. We've done it in this way. And the new companies coming into the market may solve them in new and different ways that kind of challenge the paradigm for um, compliance and security. So I think the, the concerns are real. Now there needs to be further refinement and conversation around how the requirements are met. And it's not maybe the same ways the requirements have always been met, if that makes sense.
1: Hey, that makes sense to me. We always used to have this um, this thing around oh, you have to have a wet signature for that particular item. Yeah. And you then hear of some startups or someone else who's pushing it, maybe using some kind of Adobe smart form. And all of a sudden, the need for a wet signature is completely gone. And so, exactly. so what do you do? Do you go back through compliance and say, well, they've done it? And I can't tell you how many times I've heard, well, they're the ones that'll be in trouble with the regulator. And they never got in trouble with the regulator. And, you know, the whole thing moved on, right? So, uh, yeah,
0: I, I think that's, there's a little bit of challenging the status quo in this. There's like the spirit and the letter right? And what I mean by that is there's the spirit of the regulation or the spirit of the requirement, and then the letter by which it has to be fulfilled on, right? And so sometimes I think people are like, there's only one way of doing this, and that is going to be the way and it can never be any other way. When it's really just the regulation is there's a spirit to it, like solve the the spirit of this issue, the way in which you go about doing it can be varied, right? So I think that's where, look, everyone wants to be black and white, because they want to be compliant, right? When there's any grayness, it makes people nervous. So I think the issues are real, how they get solved is still being evolved.
2: Slightly different tack now. What are your thoughts and observations around what used to be the three common topic points of people processing technology, but I now like to throw in culture and operating <laughs> model to those equations? What are your views on those enabling fast-paced digital transformation or blocking fast-paced digital transformation?
0: Yeah. I love when people ask me this question because I think the expected answer is technology is really difficult and everything else follows. And my perspective is that technology is typically the easiest part. And until you are really willing to make process changes to enable the best utilization of the technology, and until your people make it through their change curve on how they might have to acquire new skills or do their work differently you're never going to get really successful technology transformation or to be able to keep the pace of the kind of digital transformation that all these companies are after, right? So to me, the harder part of it is, you know, the process side of things and really busting through and even throwing the process out the window and recreating a new process to support the way you want to do business and getting people's heads wrapped around that their work is going to change. That's a scary thing for people, like that their work is going to change and that they may not have the skills yet to do the job. So I think the people and process side of things is far more complex than the bits and bytes needed to implement the technology.
1: Leading on from that then, you've now had the experience of working in a mega bank and you've got the experience of working in a tech company. What do you think the differences are there? Because obviously the banks are saying, oh, we want to be a tech company with a banking license. I've got some views there, but what's your view on on how far they are to doing that or, or what life is really like in a tech company versus a bank?
0: I actually believe many of the banks, when they say they want to be a tech company, are really trying to learn from tech companies, right? I bet you probably every one of them has gone out and done interviews or best practice sharings with big tech companies to understand how they do software delivery, how they run their operations, how they um, handle the developer experience for things like that. So I think they're all questing after those elements of people and process that will enable them to operate like a tech company. Now, the reality is, it's back to the question we just talked about with compliance and regulation and and the scrutiny that they're under. I think there's a little bit more complexity in them making that full transition to being a tech company, right? They've got some other things that they have to bake into their processes and their people side of things because of who's watching them to make sure that they're safe and sound. So I think working in a tech company, you might not have that same pressure from a regulatory perspective. But I do think that every um, financial institution is trying to figure out how they become more like a tech company, because again, the technology is now competitive. It's a competitive advantage. It's not a back office function. So they need to be able to operate like tech companies in order to be competitive.
2: Jennifer, one of the questions I to ask people is a question around empowerment. So we used I mean, you know usually phrased you now, if you were king for the day or if you were CEO for the day... In, in an organization? What would you be demanding from IT right now? And, and what steps would you be pushing to ensure that you get it?
0: I wish I could be CEO for longer than just one day. So I would say kind of back to the people and process side of things, right? I would want my IT organization to feel in their bones that they are the competitive advantage to the business, right? And when I say feel it, I mean, really embrace the fact that they are not just keeping the data centers running. They are the thing that is going to keep the business advancing and help the company remain relevant and competitive in a fast-paced and increasingly more digital world, right? So I think that, I hate to use the word feel, but they need to feel empowered to lead the charge. That is because there's a lot of technology that can be implemented to modernize apps and data centers and networks and employee experience. But you got to get the people feeling like, that, that they're like part of leading the charge and, and that they're empowered to raise up impediments and say, we got to make this process change, or here's something that we've learned. And they got to feel like they want to learn new skills. I would want them to feel how imperative it, it was for them to embrace that and want to drive it forward. I think brilliant technical execution is a must. Certainly. So you obviously want your technology team to know how important it is to be technically brilliant and to execute on things. But I think the growth mindset of, of the organization, the willingness to do new things, to manage through change, and to do it with positivity and energy is really paramount to making all of the technology work to its fullest capability. So I, I would really wanna charge up the technology team to say like you are helping drive this business forward. And I need you to to be willing to kind of go on this journey. And it's a big change journey, right? And that requires a lot of people in process work.
1: It makes me think, you know, how many people in IT, in FS, actually ever even get to speak to a customer, let alone think about the customer yeah. as part of their day job?
0: Well, I'll tell you, but not because you asked, but I'll tell you anyway. My teammates, when I led the employee experience functions, Many of the people that worked for me that were delivering employee experience or employee technology never talked to an employee to understand what that experience felt like. And there was no ill intent in that. It was just that it wasn't part of their job. And I'm like, how are you ever going to know the impact that you have on the employee experience or by proxy, the customer experience, if you don't understand what you do and how relevant it is to creating these amazing technology solutions or customer capabilities? So I, I would always ask them to do ride-alongs. Listen to someone on the help desk and what the experience is like. Let's do empathy interviews and talk to people because I feel like that it can sometimes feel disconnected in a technology organization because you aren't the person talking to the customer in your day-to-day interactions. But feeling how important and how relevant you are to that and in customer interaction is a really important thing to spend time on. So I, I definitely encourage people who are in tech to go talk to customers, see what it's like. You you immediately feel how important you are to the business.
1: Going back a lot a lot of years, I worked in the call center environment, and everyone was encouraged to listen to calls, listen to them in the car on the way home, on the way into work, whenever it might be. But have a listen to how our people are able to navigate the technology in order to deliver customer service and understand what the customers might want. And and actually, it's very um, it's very eye opening. It's very eye opening. So.
0: It is. And then you can really see how the work that you do for the day in the life actually impacts a real end customer experience. That's what you want people to feel is that they're connected to creating a great customer experience and and they understand their importance to that.
1: Uh, Look, So changing topic completely for a minute. I saw that you're involved in the Women Who Code. What's that all about?
0: Yes. Love Women Who Code as an organization. It is an organization that I've sat on the advisory board twice now. I think they are absolutely phenomenal. Their mission is to inspire women to excel in technology careers. And so as an organization, we want to see women represented all levels of technology, whether it's engineers, board members, tech leaders, execs, you name it. We want to see equal representation. The Women Who Code has about 200,000 members worldwide, and it's a network of people that are absolutely focused on helping women reskill and upskill creates a community for women to leverage for advice and networking and mentorship. And I got involved with them many years ago when I first started working on women in STEM and women in tech related um, issues, because we kind of were looking at the entire, we called it the pipeline. If you've heard this phenomenon of, of when women get interested as young girls in technology and what milestones throughout their life caused them to attrite from the pipeline or leak out of the pipeline. And, you know, there's a lot of efforts focused on getting girls in their you know, elementary school and middle school years to be interested in STEM and to stick with it and lots of work at the college age to get women to stick with STEM-related degrees. Women Who Code uniquely addresses after college women who are in their career and their jobs and really ensuring that they have every resource possible, technical, non-technical, education, you name it, to keep women in tech jobs and bring more into them. So I love the work that they do. I really feel like they're making a huge impact and it's something I have a lot of passion
1: about. Uh, well, I think we should make sure we've got a, a link in our show notes so that uh, if anyone wants to go follow that up. That'd be great. Uh, there's a, a place to go. All right, so let's think about the future and uh, let's go into our crystal ball section.
2: I see the future.
0: Really? Well, what do you have, a crystal ball?
2: What's going to happen?
1: Listen, if you know something, you got to tell me.
2: So, Jennifer, what do you think? One of the most significant game-changing technologies for this year and beyond will be, and how do you think that will impact financial services?
0: Some would probably argue with me that this isn't as emerging as I feel it probably still is, but I think it's the incorporation of AI and machine learning into every facet of banking and financial services. I think there's been a lot of dabbling with it, and in some cases, some really good use cases put forward with it. But I think maybe it's because I love data and I love harnessing the power of it to see how it shapes interactions and and understanding what it tells you about opportunities. But I just think there's more opportunity there, not only baking it into customer interactions, but also back office operations. I, I think that the opportunities are big for personalizing experiences, using data to make great decisions, automating manual processes. I think the challenge is doing it responsibly, because there's model risk, um, you know, bias that can be introduced through the models. So you got to be careful how you bring in things like artificial intelligence and machine learning to facilitate some of the great opportunities. But I think doing it responsibly unlocks a lot of potential options for businesses, both for customer interactions and operations, back office operations. So I think there's a lot of significance to come for how that technology is implemented.
2: Well, I completely agree. I think we'll probably still be talking about AI in 10 years' time, the way we were talking about cloud 10 years ago. I think right. people will slowly begin to understand what it can deliver. I also think, like cloud, I don't think there's a dearth of talent that understands it yet. I don't think that talent's around yet or you know, really understand, especially when you talk about the ethics behind it. So I absolutely agree. I think that I, I still think it will be on the radar for most organisations in the next 10 years or so. I mean, it's
0: such, a, it's such a cool utility. I mean, it's a really interesting set of utilities and technologies that you can apply to a lot of different business outcomes, right? So I think it's just um, interesting, the the wealth of use cases you could apply it to, but doing it safely and soundly is something n- not to take lightly.
1: Yeah, there's just so many dimensions to it, aren't there? So let's go up now. Let's do the lightning round. Uh, we usually call it the lightning round. Okay, welcome to Super Awesome Bonus lightning Round.
2: The lightning Round begins now.
1: So this is, a, this is the Fast and Furious round. A pass is okay, and it's really just to get to know you a whole lot more. So I start with the easy one. Favorite book or movie?
0: Oh, please don't judge me. Brian knows the answer to this. My favorite movie since I was very little is Mary Poppins. It's almost no hard to say before. with a straight face, but it is really my favorite movie.
2: I I really want to ask ask the next question in the voice of Dick Van Dyke. But some might say, well, (laughs) you sound like Dick Van Dyke. Anyway, so Jennifer, favourite one-day getaway location? Any
0: place with a spa.
1: What would you be doing if you didn't work in banking, banking IT?
0: I would have a really large farm. And I would rescue hundreds of dogs and give them the bestest life possible. <laughs>
1: yeah. So Brian, I'm, I'm nodding. I'm thinking with, her, yeah, I, I get that. Brian's shaking his yeah.
2: head. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the other person in my life is called Jennifer who has exactly the same dream, right? <laughs> so, so, you know, it was llamas. We need to buy two acres so I can have llamas. Was it, I just said, how close do you have to plant them? We should not repeat that on the video. First, concert or live performance that you ever saw?
0: Gosh, the new kids on the block.
1: <laughs> Brian, we're not meant to judge.
0: <laughs> um, <laughs> if you guys are a lightning around, I could have made up something really cool, like the Eagles or something like, We'd be like wow, that's awesome. I was also like nine. Okay, so don't judge.
1: What's your favourite place of all the places you've travelled?
0: I would say that is definitely a tie between London and Edinburgh.
1: So you've
2: done the first concert. The last concert, that you saw
0: John I saw John Mayer
2: that's a bit different from yeah you know, yeah
0: it was the, okay. it was the 80s Brian <laughs> 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 <laughs>
1: okay favorite gadget or piece of technology
0: absolutely my Kindle I read nonstop, so that Kindle is like my lifeline
2: to all my books what piece of career advice do you wish you had given your younger self
0: That it's okay to be uncomfortable when you're doing something new. That staying comfortable means staying inside the box of what you know. And that being uncomfortable means it's pushing you and forcing you to grow. And you should embrace that discomfort because it means you're expanding your capabilities, right? So instead of being worried about being uncomfortable and worrying about failure, taking risks, but being happy with the discomfort because it helps you grow is good advice.
1: So who's your mentor or have you been most inspired by?
0: I would always answer this question with my mom because she, at a very young age for me, inspired both my sister and I to have set no boundaries for what we could accomplish, right? And to let no one tell us that, Only certain kinds of people can have certain kinds of jobs. And, you know, that if we put our minds to anything, that we could accomplish it. And so those words and that inspiration she gave me when I was a nine-year-old kid declaring I was going to be an electrical engineer have stuck with me for my whole life. So that's probably the, the biggest source of inspiration for me was, and the words I still hear now, don't limit yourself. You're only confined by what you can actually accomplish yourself. The one that
2: we like to throw in there, if you were an ice cream, what flavor would you be?
0: Mint chocolate chip. But only the white kind of mint chocolate chip. I don't like green mint chocolate chip.
1: Last time you used cash, when and
0: what for? Two weekends ago and it was to buy admission tickets to my youngest
2: daughter's basketball game. How do you stay productive and motivated when working virtually?
0: I'd say probably the biggest thing is I get up and try to walk away from the computer for you know short periods of time throughout the day and leave the office so that I can just get like a mental reset. It's really easy to sit and be in front of this computer and be working constantly. But I try to get up and walk around and even step outside when it's nice and get a little bit of a break to, to keep me kind of energized throughout the day.
1: What are you most excited for about the future of financial services and tech? The
0: thing that excites me the most is that there is a really important need for brilliant technology to support customer interactions. And I think that there is Any kind of tech that's available, there's a place for it in financial services. So it excites me because any of the new innovations or emerging technology, I I always can think of a way to apply that in financial services that would help the business in some way, shape, or form. So I think it's exciting because that industry is very dependent on brilliant technology and leveraging emerging technology. And as a consumer, I mean, I think banking, for example, is super relevant to everyone. So you can see how the investments and innovation come through in great customer interactions. And so it excites me because it's a financial services and industry is a huge consumer of great technology.
2: If you had to sing in a karaoke bar, what song do you pick? Journey. Don't stop believing.
0: Could have gone with Daft Punk. We could have gone. Harder, better, faster, stronger.
1: Well, it's the last time our guests started singing along. Yeah.
0: Oh, no, that's not going to happen today. No.
1: <laughs> <laughs> that's fine. It's the only time it ever happened. Anyway. And yeah, okay. I,
0: I have oh, actually sh- never sung at a karaoke bar. That's <laughs> something right, and
1: right, take a note. Okay, so I'm going to ask this, having been on text with you before now. So what's your most used emoji? Smiley
0: face. I, I, I actually overuse the smiley face a lot in email. Although the second runner up is the... Um, Straight faced, kind of blinking, snarky emoji, I guess is what I call it.
1: That's the only one you've ever sent me. Oh,
0: well, Matthew, then you kind of know what I'm trying (laughs) to tell you. Read between the lines there. But I, even in like prior lives, have gotten the hey, you you sent a lot of smiley emojis in email. You want to tone down the smiles? I'm like, no, I want people to know I'm happy to talk to them and and engage my conversation with them. I'll try to send you more smiles,
2: Matthew.
1: (laughs) <laughs> Only if they're needed. It's fine. All right, l- last uh, last couple, Brian. This one's going
2: off piece. How long did it take you to pick the lights in your new house?
0: Five hours. <laughs> Five solid hours.
1: <laughs> that doesn't sound like a lot. <laughs> <laughs> what?
0: Uh,
2: I don't think that was the first attempt, Matthew. I think there were a couple <laughs> of attempts. I
0: said, <laughs> maybe I should have said this, Brian. Three separate trips to look at things, then... Five hours to whittle down the list. Maybe that's the way I should have phrased that.
2: That was an insider. I I knew that one. I knew that one. That was an (laughs) insider's question.
1: All right. So look, my my last question, it's been fabulous, my my last question, what's one thing that we can steal from you as a great idea?
0: I'm passing on this one, definitely. (laughs) 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 This one I saw, what's funny about this is I put answers to every one of your lightning round questions except for two. The karaoke song. And this answer, this question, because I was like, I don't have any good ideas about anything. Like, why would he ask me this? Like, I have terrible ideas. So you should pick a different question because I, I don't even have an answer <laughs> for that
1: one. I just made up journey. <laughs> uh, <laughs> <laughs> well, maybe, I, okay, I'm crying now.
2: by well, the opening bar so maybe... journey on every one of my one-to-ones now. <laughs>
1: Good. It was the only
2: safe for work option
0: I could pick. Okay, yeah.
1: Oh, my goodness. Oh, my goodness. Well, I need a last question. So, all right, my last question then. What's the weirdest food you've ever eaten?
0: Weird for me, but maybe not weird where I ate it. I, I feel like at one point in my travels, I ate jellyfish, mm-hmm. um, which seemed like an unusual thing for me to eat, having never tried it before. Was that in Japan?
1: Uh, that sounds... Uh,
0: it was in Singapore. that
1: Yes, it wouldn't be on my menu choice. Absolutely. All right. I
0: was, you know, um, I did as I was instructed when I was traveling to try new things.
1: Yeah. Uh, happened to me a lot. When you meet new people and they think, oh, we're going to test them. Like, okay. I've been living in Asia for the last five years. You really don't need to take me through the rookie exam.
0: Well, maybe that's what it was. I, sh- I never really considered maybe I was being tested. This was like, we're just going to put a bunch of stuff in front of her and see what she actually eats. And I assumed. Yeah. I did not try the Dorian. Like or
1: however you pronounce it. Oh yeah, that, that Dorian fruit's to be av- avoided at all costs. Although everyone at the Absolutely. table ate it,
0: and I smelled it, and I was like, no, I just can't do it.
1: Oh. No, and and McDonald's do a Dorian McDonald's I saw. Unbelievable. So this is Malaysia, right? Um, unbelievable, unbelievable. Anyway, um, yeah, duck tongue and chicken feet. I think those were the two that I was never, wow. never a favorite. I never even, thing. never even um, heard of
0: those. Eating those.
1: Yeah,
2: I've done done, um, in China and uh, Goose Feet in Hong Kong. But I did did work in Korea for a couple of months, so I've got no idea.
1: Oh, no, 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 don't ask. ask Um, Oh, my goodness. So thank you for spending the time with us today. Uh, We've really enjoyed the conversation. And and hopefully you can come back if we've not scared you off too much and, uh, and come talk again. Thank you, Jennifer.
0: I would love to come back. This is really fun. Thank you. Was that okay? Did you guys get what you did? (laughs)
2: Yeah, we did. It was really good. Really,
0: really good. You can choose whether you keep New Kids on the Block or not. I feel like I've just painted myself into Mary Poppins and New Kids on the Block, and now they're like, who is this lady? She's certifiably insane.
1: Okay, so despite what you've just heard, Jennifer's not insane. She is, however, a really good sport. So to keep up with the latest on VMware's industry verticals, or to hear more about what Jennifer's up to, please do follow her on LinkedIn. We'll have links to her page and to the Women Who Code website in our show notes. As always, if we can help you in any way, please do talk with your VMware account team. Or you can connect with us on LinkedIn. Just search for Brian Hayes or Matthew O'Neill at VMware. You can also follow me on Twitter at Matthew ON or our podcast on Twitter at DBTBpod. And you can find our show notes at don'tbreakthebankpodcast.com. If you like our podcast and could leave us a review and comment on Apple Podcasts, that would be really appreciated. And if you have any ideas for future episodes or even would wish to appear as a future guest, please do get in touch. We hope you can join us again next time. Please do take care.